Welcome to Twill, the Week in Health Law, the avoidable adverse event podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on May 18th, 2016. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined by my co-host... Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. And Frank, this week a special treat on Twill as we're pleased to welcome Henry Greeley, the Dean F. and Kate Edelman Johnson Professor of Law at Stanford Law School. There, Professor Greeley also serves as the Director of the Center for Law and the Biosciences. He specializes in the ethical, legal, and social implications of new biomedical technologies, particularly those related to neuroscience, genetics, and stem cell research. He is, of course, one of the nation's preeminent health law scholars. Big welcome to the pod, Hank. Thank you for asking me to be on it. I vaguely remember from my youth, and it is now vague, books uh, that had sex in the title alongside joy. I also remember early in my academic career, the, the absolute horror that the famous Anthony Honoré of Heart and Honoré fame suddenly pushed out a book called Sex Law under the name of Tony Honoré, which no one ever knew anyone had ever called him. <laughs> and now you have a Harvard University press book called The End of Sex, or worse, I think, as you term it in the text, the obsolescence of sex. So can you start us with a primer on the science you're discussing here? Sure. Before I do, I have to say that that title came from my law professor friend and colleague, Buzz Thompson. The two of us were having dinner with our wives. Buzz suggested the title. Both our wives immediately said, what a great title. And Buzz and I both looked at each other sort of disconcerted. The end of sex isn't really about the end of having sex, however you do, you and Bill Clinton define it. But I do think we're going to see in the next 20 to 40 years a substantial decline in in the number of people who use sexual intercourse in order to conceive their babies. And I see that coming for two different scientific reasons, two different revolutions advancing. And then I think what's been until now a relatively unforeseen manner producing this quite big result. One is genomics. So the genomics revolution is well in hand. The cost of sequencing a human genome, of determining the A's, C's, G's, and T's that make up the DNA in any of us, has gone from roughly half a billion dollars in 2003 to about $1,000, $1 to $2,000 today. That's not going to keep declining at that rate infinitely, but it is going to keep getting smaller and smaller. That gives us the chance to, for example, take 100 different embryos, and do a procedure that's been around for 25 years called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, where you take one or a few cells from those embryos, do a DNA test on those, and use the, the test results to decide which embryos you want to transfer into a woman's uterus for possible implantation, pregnancy, and eventually birth. PGD has been around for about 25 years, but so far it's only been able to tell you one or two particular genetic traits. With whole genome sequencing getting cheaper and cheaper, that's changing, and soon we'll be able to know everything genetics can tell us, which isn't nearly as much as most people think it is, but is a significant amount for any embryo for a relatively, uh, relatively low price. So that's one revolution. Coming at it from the other side is a revolution in stem cell research, 
The big problem with PGD right now has been not so much the limitation on the number of things you could test for, but the fact that to do PGD, you've got to do in vitro fertilization. And that is always expensive. For the woman, it is unpleasant and risky, not so much for the man, one of those areas where life is unfair. But egg harvest, which you have to do to do IVF, is not a benign procedure. It is 90% of the cost of IVF, it's 99% of the discomfort, and it's 100% of the risk. About half of 1% of women who go through egg harvest every year end up hospitalized as a result. We're going to be able to avoid that, I think by taking skin cells and turning them into what are called induced pluripotent stem cells, a procedure that's well worked out at this point. And then the next step, which is not as well worked out, taking those iPSCs, induced pluripotent stem cells, and turning them specifically into eggs or sperm and using those eggs and sperm to make embryos. I think for both of these scientific revolutions, part of what makes me think this is likely to happen is they're not being driven by reproduction. The genetic sequencing is being driven by a host of medical applications. So are the efforts to use iPSCs for specific medical purposes to make specific kinds of cells. So I think we've got these two different things coming from two different areas of biomedical science, each with a lot of money and interest and enthusiasm behind them. And they're going to overlap in reproduction and change our world. I do think that the world-changing implications of this are really well laid out in your book, Hank. Um, I just found it a really gripping read, especially when you got to some of the scenarios about exactly the situations that parents would face. And one of them, um, I forget which chapter it was in, but it was about the parents being presented with five different embryos. And you gave this very considered account of the degree of predictive validity or accuracy that would be possible. So, for example, they'd know that one embryo would be really good, would have a 40 to 60 percent chance of being in the top 25 percent of SAT scores, but would be lower ranked in terms of athletics and, you know, other forms of uh, foreknowledge that might be available. And I was wondering if you could describe to our listeners, you know, how that type of scenario might play out. Sure. I think that's going to be one of the toughest things about what I call easy PGD. It gives parents choices, but those choices aren't going to be very easy. The way I envision this 20 to 40 years from now, after I hope and expect rigorous safety testing and FDA approval and equivalent approvals in other countries. Parents who want to have a kid will go to a clinic. He will give some sperm. She will give some skin cells, which will be made into eggs. They'll make 100 embryos. None of this will cost them a dime because for public health purposes, this will save whoever's paying for the health care so much money that it will be heavily subsidized. And then they'll get results back on 100 embryos. I think at least I found it useful to think of those results as falling into five categories. One category is really nasty, early, highly penetrant, highly predictable genetic diseases, things like Tay-Sachs disease. Each one is relatively rare. When you add them all up, it's about 1% to 2% of births. Second category is all sorts of other diseases with risks either high or low, things like BRCA1 mutations or Alzheimer's uh, predilection through having two ApoE4 alleles or Lynch syndrome for colon cancer to very weak things like colorblindness or you know, relatively much less important things like partial colorblindness. A lot of those things we know something about. Parents may be interested in them. A third category will be cosmetic, hair color, eye color, skin color, height, nose shape, 
male pattern baldness, early white hair, those sorts of things. We don't know much about that yet because the National Institutes of Health hasn't been very interested in them, but we will learn a lot about that. Fourth category will be behavioral traits, where your, your points about intelligence, or at least SAT scores, whatever it is that measures, and athletic ability come in. I don't think that we're going to be very powerful there. I think you know, 25% in the top 10%, 25% chance of being in the top 10% strikes me as the high end of where we're likely to be for most of that. Uh, more likely would be 12% or 15% of the top 10%, 65% in the top half. But that's an open empirical question. And who really knows where the behavioral associations with genetics will be in 20 to 40 years? And then the fifth category is the easiest one genetically, boy or girl. So what I foresee is parents will be asked in advance, what do they want to know about their embryos? Do they just want to know about those really nasty early diseases to avoid the 1% to 2% chance of having a baby with that? Do they want to know sex? Do they want to know uh, athletic ability? Do they want to know hair color? Do they want to know uh, risk of Alzheimer's disease? And then after the 100 embryos are sequenced, they'll be told the results. How they weigh those things, how do you weigh a 10% higher risk of schizophrenia against a 30% lower risk of type 2 diabetes along with a 10% higher chance of being artistically creative and a 20% lower chance of being well-coordinated or being a, a sprinter rather than a marathoner. I think that's going to be really tough and parents are going to have to be well-prepared. One of the ironic side effects, I think, of this process is we're likely to have uh, divorces. We're likely to have couples split up as they can't agree on which embryo to transfer. And I was just wondering, as a follow-up on that, I have followed, and admittedly not closely enough, but I've tried to follow some of the either critical race theory of health and genetics um, work by, say, Dorothy Roberts or Alondra Nelson's recent uh, Social Life of DNA and others about the ways in which sort of genetic identity can become not just a matter of a scientific prediction, but also sort of embedded in sociological constructions of identity. And one thing I'm wondering is, do you think there's going to be a need for regulation to stop, say, disreputable entities from overclaiming about their ability to predict certain characteristics on the basis of genes. Yes, and good luck to us. <laughs> Already we've got an enormous problem with everything in our society being hyped and genetics being particularly highly hyped. I was very pleased, uh, I think just earlier this week, with the International Society for Stem Cell Research's new guidelines, which stress the need to avoid hype. People are currently selling direct-to-consumer genetic tests with claims that are, at the very best, reckless, and at the worst, flat-out lies. I think that needs to be, I, I would love to see that reined in. Doing that in our culture, which is saturated with hype, and where, at least in recent years, the Supreme Court seems bent on protecting commercial enterprises' free speech rights to do anything that's not a frank lie, I think it's going to be really difficult. My hope and expectation is this will largely end up being run through IVF clinics, because although you won't need egg harvest, you'll still need the basics of IVF in order to do easy PGD. And that the IVF clinics, though not immune from hype, certainly, will be constrained to some extent by their medical licenses and professional responsibility uh, to avoid the worst excesses. But I think it's going to be a continuing problem. People, and, and it's, it's not just 
it's not just the providers or the companies. Um, culturally, we have, it's almost like a horror film, love-hate relationship with the idea of genetic determinism. We're scared of it, and yet we kind of like it at the same time. So we're, a, at least in the U.S., I think we're a fertile audience for overclaims about genetics. You note that EasyPGD does not require germline genomic editing, the CRISPR-Cas9 stuff and so on, but it's not incompatible with it, as I understand the narrative. Given how you sort of discuss the early adopters of these new technologies as opposed to sort of, I guess, what we would call the long tail. Isn't it as likely that the early adopters will go for the whole package and not just take easy PGD, but also uh, ask for a dose of CRISPR as well? That's a really good question. And it's one that annoyed me a lot when CRISPR really burst onto the scene. This book has been a long time in the making. It really started with a talk Lori Zoloff from Northwestern gave at a conference we were at in October of 2010 about deriving gametes from stem cells. I started writing the book in 2011. And at that point, it was fairly easy for me to dismiss the possibilities of gene editing as opposed to gene selection, because it was expensive, difficult, clunky, not very accurate, etc. Over the last year, I've been heavily involved with some of the discussions of CRISPR-Cas9, which has made gene editing an order of magnitude less clunky, expensive, difficult, inaccurate, expensive, etc. So unlike two years ago, I think now that gene editing will be a significant potential complement to embryo selection. I do think that embryo selection through EZPGD is likely to come first because the gene editing will add different safety questions, which will be tricky and will require an additional level of complexity. I think the EZPGD safety questions deriving eggs and sperm from stem cells are going to be tough. Gene editing will have that since it will largely work, I think, from editing eggs and sperm, not from editing embryos. And in addition, it will have the safety issues around the editing process. The other tougher question, I, I, I suspect those safety questions will eventually be resolved, but I don't think they'll be resolved as quickly as the embryo selection, easy PGD safety questions. The other question I wonder about is to what extent will parents really want to use external genes? I think most parents are likely to want to have a, a baby that's a mix of just the two of them. Uh, but that's a guess about a world and a culture 20 to 40 years in advance, and it's hard to know. If somebody came up with gene editing that produced super babies that offered the prospect of really huge improvements, great enhancements, then I could see parents perhaps turning to that. But I don't see that on the horizon, certainly anytime soon. We know a lot about genes that do bad things to people. We know almost nothing about genetic variations that do good things for people or enhance them. And the complexities there are so great that I'm not sure when we will, if ever, be able to do substantial genetic enhancement. But I have to say, uh, the rise of CRISPR-Cas9 forced some serious rewriting on my part and some reconsideration about the relative roles of embryo selection versus uh, embryo editing. And I guess that, Hank, takes us into um, you know a core part of the book, obviously, which is when you sort of try and lay out the costs and benefits for for us, as you as you point out, not to 
not just academically, but for, for all persons. You isolated out three sort of top level benefits. First, decrease in the amount of human suffering caused by genetic disease, etc. And it seems hard to disagree with that. But the other two that you, you highlight, a closer match between the children's parents' wants and the, uh, and what they get. And third, a sort of a, a broader, more amorphous sort of freedom uh, to use technologies. I wondered whether two and two and three in that list, Hank, were, you know, as the uh, the great philosopher Jagger has remarked, you don't always get what you want. It's true. I think those are interests to be balanced. They're not absolutes to be played as trump cards, a term that I guess I can no longer use given the path this presidential election has taken. But um, I, I don't think they end the discussion. Uh, but I do think all other things being equal, parents getting something closer to what they want is a good thing. I do think parents need to be, prospective parents need to be heavily counseled that they're not going to get exactly what they want. When I give talks about this, I ask the audience, how many of you are parents? And a bunch of hands typically go up. And then I ask, how many of you parents had your children turn out exactly the way you expected? And of course, no hands go up. Easy PGD is not going to change that very much. It may reduce the uncertainty or the, the difference from your expectations by a couple of percentage points, but it's not going to be a big deal. But it is, it is something to be weighed. And then the general interest in liberty, uh, I think, always is there at least in American culture, we should be able, I think the underlying uh, deepest er-constitutional-like rule in America is you should be able to do whatever you want unless there's some good reason for you not to. And so it doesn't get stated very often, but I don't think you should limit reproductive choices unless there is a good reason to limit them. And there are some potentially good reasons to limit them either weakly or strongly. You know, the, the goal of my book, and I hope I did this, and my editor was pushing me to, to take a stronger normative position, but I kind of viewed this as a lawyer's memo to a client. Here's a complicated issue. Here are all the pluses and minuses. Here are the things you should think about. What do you want to do? I do at the end say what I would do because it felt a little too coy not to, but my goal really is to lay out the pluses and minuses and let people weigh the balance for themselves. And I think that the human suffering, the closer to parental desires and the liberty interests are the pluses against which people will weigh a wide variety of minuses. And those minuses will differ depending on the philosophy and personality and culture of the person doing the weighing. And I would like for us to discuss some of the minuses because I think that the benefits might be just as culturally relative as the costs. And one of the things that I'm thinking about is, you know, we mentioned financing, I guess, uh, in the book, or the, the, the book does mention financing or and how insurance might cover this sort of thing. And it raises a couple of issues to me, I guess. One is you have the question of the too limited diffusion of a very beneficial technology, in which case, you know, you, you have just, say, an intensification of existing trends toward assortative mating. I guess that was the term from, I forget the social scientist that coined it, but uh, sort of a trend in uh, the more educated or uh, folks uh, being more likely to marry, etc. Um, and then, or people matching, educative matching is what it is. And then the second being that, you know, you, you worry that essentially, so that would counsel in favor of an egalitarian program. But on the other hand, you worry that like to the extent you make it more and more widespread, it becomes an arms race. And anyone who's not part of it, it's not just a matter of, oh, this is people's free choice. It's you are affirmatively choosing a course that is going to leave your children disadvantaged relative to other children. 
So I guess, would it be the case that if if one has both of those worries, then they ultimately wash out in the end? Or are there, are there more so subtle uh, regulatory approaches to those two worries? I, I think people will weigh those worries differently. And people in different cultures are likely to have culturally conditioned different weights on those concerns. When technology makes changes in the world, it is going to change the weights of our choices. In a world with automobiles, the person who decides not to use an automobile is giving up something that they hadn't been giving up before there were automobiles. In a world with easy PGD, a person who decides not to use easy PGD or its equivalent is giving up something. And that's a form of, of sort of implicit coercion. I talk a lot. I've got a, a full chapter about coercion. It's mainly about the more frank coercion. Governments or others saying you must do this or you can't do that. But there is an implicit coercion that you really can't get away from. New opportunities impose, change, change your decision-making calculus. I do think that we're not talking about super babies here. The difference and you know, proving any of these percentages is uh, impossible. But my sense is babies carefully chosen through easy PGD would be 10 to 20 percent healthier than other babies that have some less risk. Some, and, you know, your chance of getting hit by a bus is the same. Your chance of being infected with Ebola virus is the same. But there are a bunch of things where your chances would be lower. 10 to 20 percent is not worth sneezing at. It, it, 10 to 20 percent is worth something. It's not super babies, and it's not substantially different from what already distinguishes the health of children born to rich parents versus children born to poor parents. I wouldn't want to add another 10 to 20 percent inequality on top of the existing 10 to 20 percent inequality. I don't think the pluses are going to be so enormous that a parent will be faced with a situation where he or she concludes, I just can't reasonably avoid using this. I think the pluses and minuses are going to be smaller. I think the advantages of easy PGD are going to be small enough that some parents reasonably can and will decide not to use it. So that, that's a, a long-winded response uh, to your question. Certainly, it shifts the options and that does change the world and the decisions people face. I don't think it is going to be an overwhelmingly compelling one, but I think it's going to be of interest enough so that after it's been around and FDA approved for 10 years or so, I'd be surprised if half of the kids in the U.S. weren't conceived using EZPGD. The good news for me, by the way, is having set this at 20 to 40 years in the future, I'm unlikely to know if I'm wrong because... A piece of advice, if you're going to make a bold prediction, set its endpoint for after your expected lifespan. Well, except the the bad news is that these technologies tend to accelerate faster than we anticipate. In the long run. In the short run, they're slower. In the long run, they're faster. That's right. The, the three to 10 year model or whatever it is, wasn't that from uh, Bill Gates, I think? I think several people have claimed it, but it, but of course, there's an ascertainment bias there. That's only true with the ones that actually work. <laughs> there are a bunch of things that um, never, never actually get adopted, like the supersonic transport. Uh, there are a bunch of technically possible things that we haven't ended up doing, and easy PGD might be one of them. I actually think the part of the book where I think I make the biggest contribution, other than just the idea of putting these two technologies together is the middle section, which talks about why I think it's going to be adopted, sort of the glide path toward adoption. And you know, for a lot of people, they see this and they say, Brave New World or Gattaca, and of course, we'll never allow this. 
But I think actually it's got a, a kind of subtle and interesting spur to adoption. The use of stem cell derived gametes is going to be driven, I think, not by genetic testing initially, but by the millions of couples who want to have genetically related children, but can't because one of them doesn't make eggs or one of them doesn't make sperm. And this is particularly true, of course, with aging mothers. But it's also true with people who, because of disease or accident or, or genetic problem at birth, just don't make eggs or sperm. That's what I think the FDA will first approve it for. But then, of course, under the off-label use doctrine, once it's approved for one thing, it's going to spread out. So you've also got an IVF industry that's very uh, profitable and very interested in expanding its market. And you've got the strange contradictions of IVF and the right to life movement in the U.S., where in spite of having one of the developed world's strongest anti-abortion movements in America, we have the least regulated IVF system in America for complicated reasons. So I think there are a whole bunch of reasons that make it likely this will go forward, even though when you first look at it, it seems people aren't going to do this or governments aren't going to allow this. I think, in fact, they probably will. Well, let's talk a little bit about the legal and regulatory landscape uh, on, on that note. I mean, if there's one thing I think we we can predict there will be jurisdictions either in this country or uh, in other parts of the world that perhaps have much stronger cultural uh, connections perhaps to Catholic teaching or so on that will try and regulate slash ban uh, some aspects or some uses. I mean, uh, you, you could certainly see this being in some jurisdictions that I won't mention, 2025's bathroom law, as as they try and ban uni parents. And I guess other issues such as male-female ratios and so on come in. So I, I guess my, uh, my overriding question is, do you think that either in under U.S. constitutional law or, say, under European Convention on Human Rights, our current sort of protections for reproductive services and choice and so on will be sufficient to, um, to, to point us at least in, in sort of the right sorts of directions? Part of that depends on knowing what the right sorts of directions are. And I think that's something that's likely to change from place to place and culture to culture. I'm not a strong believer that there is a clear set of universal human rights that dictate one result with respect to a technology like this although I respect the views of people who think there is, I think clearly different places will do different things. The Vatican City is not likely to allow this in its uh, role as one of the world's smallest nation states. I, I don't think Germany and Italy, for example, are likely to push on it uh, to uh, adopt it widely. Some of the Latin American countries will resist it. On the other hand, some of the East Asian countries will encourage it quite strongly, I think. As to whether existing constitutional law in the United States, constitutional or human rights law in other countries is sufficient to deal with this, the answer is clearly no, in that we don't have any precedents. We don't know how it's going to be applied. It's a technology that doesn't yet exist. I talk in the book about how current U.S. constitutional doctrine might be applied to it. But I think even today, um, I could see, let alone an eight-person Supreme Court, but I could see a nine-person Supreme Court deciding some of these constitutional issues in a variety of ways. I don't think there's a clear-cut yes-no answer when you look both at the reproductive rights line of cases and the parental rights to control their children uh, line of cases from the Supreme Court. 
And of course, moving things 20 to 40 years out, who knows what the Supreme Court's jurisprudence will look like at that point. So I think those issues are relevant. I think they are going to be evolving over time. Um, we don't, I don't think we can make, give clear answers based on today's law, either internally or internationally. Uh, and whether the answers will be clear in 20 to 40 years, I don't know. I, it's going to be a work in progress. How would you suggest we sort of approach the, the question of, I know, genetic determinism, if you like? You, you mentioned the, the movie Gattaca, and so uh, spoilers, everybody. That movie uh, concerned Vincent, who was sort of one of the last born without the new genetic uh, enhancements, who was therefore discriminated against. And the counterpoint, of course, was Jerome, um, who was born with the uh, enhancements, but tried to commit suicide because he failed to live up to his genetic profile. And part of the takeaway from or part of the theme of that movie was that we were creating a sort of a dualism between valid and invalid humans. Where, where do we go to start asking and, and, and discussing that question, Hank? So I don't think you can really talk about spoilers for a movie that's almost 20 years old. I think you're, I think you're on safe ground there. Um, I, I actually rewatched the movie recently and was surprised by two things, how ugly the cars were in the future and how big the phones were, which was some evidence actually that predicting the future is really hard. It's hard to get it right. Um, it's important to remember that Gattaca is fiction. And fiction has a bias toward the dramatic. Fiction likes dystopias. Fiction doesn't particularly like utopias. And fiction particularly doesn't like muddling through with you know, relative success, avoiding most catastrophes, but not all of them. The real life, uh, the real world is much more heavily in that last class. We muddle through things. So far, we've muddled through the first 40 years of the application of genetics to humans without great clarity and uh, great planning, but also without great disasters. That's, I think, more normal. Having said that, Gattaca, in a way, is its own refutation because, of course, Vincent ends up going off to Saturn. He turns out to be successful. Uh, I think it's, it's always bothered me and that I think it's unrealistic to assume that a society would get so hung up on genetic variations as opposed to actual behavior behaviors, as the society in Gattaca does. But that is got to be an ongoing, important educational theme, medical theme, social theme. For the most part, genes aren't tested. For some people, they are. If you're born with a Huntington's disease allele, the only way you're not going to die from Huntington's disease is to die first from something else. But for 95% of us, genes are an influence. They're not our destiny. And in a way, I think, as we see more of this, as people start using e easy PGD and see that, you know, they picked embryo number 12, but he didn't turn out to be Andrew Luck, the world's greatest quarterback, even though he looked like he would be, we may actually see it de um, bringing down the sense of genetic determinism uh, to more realistic levels. Most of the people I know in genetics have a do not believe in strong genetic determinism, except for those few unfortunates who have something really, really nasty, which happily is really, really rare. Our society tends to believe in that more, in part because drama, fiction, newspapers, and some foolish scientists have encouraged them to think that. And we need to fight against that, that overhyping, that overbelief in genetic determinism. Uh, the idea that a society would base itself on a completely, on an almost completely false view of genetic determinism seems to me, I can't say impossible. Uh, 
Um, working in bioethics, you're always reluctant to play the Nazi card, but the Nazis base their society on some pretty ridiculous ideas. So in North Korea bases its society on some pretty ridiculous ideas. It's not impossible that some societies will do that, but I think it's not likely. And particularly in the developed West, I think it is unlikely. But it needs uh, it needs continued vigilance. And I just want to second your point about the hype cycle and problem in general. Uh, my pet peeve this week has been the news all over that the first artificially intelligent robot lawyer has been hired by a law firm. Um, if you scratch two centimeters or two millimeters beneath the surface of the story, you see that actually it's software that looks to me to be slightly better than Westlaw, which is not really that high a law a bar. And so it's amazing to me how much uh, these things can be overhyped. Given the, the role of hype and, and the inevitability of overhyping, just to close us out, uh, Hank, do you think that there are any immediate steps that could be taken either on the state, the federal, even international regulatory agenda that would guide us towards better uh, futures here? Before I do that, I do have to say that I think this has been the best podcast in the history of mankind. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, not just the history, but the future, since we were talking about overhyping. <laughs> um, I think uh, right now, I think it's a little early for regulation, except with respect to safety. I think the FDA has jurisdiction over these issues. It is not entirely clear that the FDA has. It requires one to say that, um, well, particularly with respect to genetic editing, it might require one to say that an embryo is a drug, device, or biological product, which I can imagine some judges being reluctant to talk about. There's also the question of whether the testing is a medical device, which remains in some question. So I would like to see the safety and efficacy regulation made clearer. Right now, though, I think we're at the stage where we need to begin to lay the foundation for an educated, uh, educated decision makers and an educated citizenry. I think we are going to see stem cell derived human gametes within a decade. And I have to tell you, I've got friends who work in that in that field of deriving gametes from stem cells. Uh, Rene Rejo Pera, who is hugely helpful in the book and is now the head of research for the University of Montana. Uh, used to tell me how two or three times a week she would get emails from people desperately begging her to help them make eggs or sperm so they could have children of their own. There is a There are people who are going to want to push this envelope. The science isn't going to allow it even in a, a reckless manner for five or ten years, but it will shortly thereafter, I think. And it, we need people to be to know the vocabulary, to know some of the issues, to be ready to talk meaningfully and listen meaningfully to to discussions about these questions. That, I think, is the stage we're in right now. So apart from more clarity on, reg on safety and to some extent efficacy regulation, I think it's really more at the educational stage today. And that is the end of the end of sex and also the end of this week's The Week in Health Law. A special thank you to Professor Greeley for joining us. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at Hank Greeley, L-S-J-U. That's H-A-N-K-G-R-E-E-L-Y-L-S-J-U. Great fun having you with us, Hank, and we'll be sure to include your endorsement in our future marketing. <laughs> well, it was a great discussion. Uh, let's do it again sometime over some beer. We post our show notes at twill.com. If you have a moment, please go to iTunes and rate the show. You can contact me on Twitter at Nicholas Terry and Frank where can you be reached this week I am at Frank Pasquale on Twitter 
Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week. Music